Um, so let me just begin. My slide's not moving on. There we go. Right. So throughout um, my session, I really just want to cover a very basic business structure um, that we see quite a lot of, certainly long-standing businesses um, end up looking like. So when, when a company incorporates, you normally have a trade that you want to run. Um, you might have a single shareholder, you might have, it might be a family business, or there might be a few members of the family or a business partner. Um, but you've got the shareholders owning a single company um, and they commence a trade. Over the years, hopefully the trade is successful. Um, and by the time it comes to um, sort of 10, 15 years down the line, the company's made a good amount of profits. Um, it's perhaps now built up quite a significant cash reserves or even the company has used some of those cash reserves to either invest in buying its trading property or um, and in a lot of cases that we see, we actually have trading companies, but owning um, rental properties, whether that's residential or commercial, or you maybe you've invested in um, stocks and shares, or, or you've done something to make that cash work for you when you're not actually using it and you're not needing it to extract personally. Um, so, Obviously, it's great that the company has been successful. It's created these extra assets that it doesn't necessarily need for the trade, but this actually has uh, some downsides from a tax perspective. Um, the first thing is trading companies often benefit from certain reliefs, whether that's capital gains tax. Um, the most obvious one is entrepreneurs relief or what's now called business asset disposal relief um, so as long as you've got you're selling shares of a trading company you'll pay 10 percent tax on the first million pounds the problem is if you've now got um, sort of a significant residential portfolio of properties um, you may no longer have a trading company and therefore you may not qualify for um, that beneficial um, 10 percent capital gains tax rate also for inheritance tax, um, business property relief is um, a very important um, relief for business owners, um, provided it's a trading company. Um, in most cases, uh, the, the shares should qualify from 100% relief for inheritance tax. Uh, so obviously, trading companies become very valuable over time, and especially if they've been handed down through generations. Um, so it's very important to a lot of business owners, um, especially looking at um, you know, business owners who are in, in, in their later years looking towards retirement. If they're going to hand some of the shares down to future generations, they'll want to know that there's still business property relief available. Um, and again, having non-trading assets in the company um, and especially property investments could cause an, an issue for, for business property relief as well for inheritance tax. So um, now my, most of my day-to-day -day work is looking at these types of structures and making sure they're as tax efficient for the owners as possible. Um, and specifically what I wanted to focus on today is how if someone came along and let's say something went wrong with the trade, um, and there was a significant claim and the trading company um, had to pay out, uh, then potentially their cash and um, property portfolio might need to be um, used and the portfolio liquidate, um, realized to pay out any, um, any issues that have arised. Or it might simply be that the trading company can't meet its debts and therefore has to use um, the, these valuable assets to, to cover that. So, uh, the question is, how do we make sure that these assets that have been built up over time um, do not 
can cannot be used um, by suppliers in any in any kind of way in, in that shape. So what we normally look at in this kind of structure when we when the sole aim is to protect those assets is inserting a new holding company. There are other methods which could, and I, I will come on briefly to demergers, um, but they're a lot more complex and a lot more expensive to implement. Um, so, as I say, if if the protection of those assets is the main aim here, um, then hopefully a more simple share exchange option um, will be suitable. So the way we do a share for share exchange is we have an existing trading company. I've already talked about that structure and we'll incorporate a new holding company. At this point, this company is just a brand new company. Um, the existing shareholders incorporate that maybe with one share each. Um, and then we do what's called a share for share exchange. Basically, the holding company buys the trading company shares. And instead of using cash, as you would expect on a normal sort of third party takeover, the holding company issues new shares in itself. So uh, hence the term share for share exchange. All we're doing is swapping trading company shares for holding company shares. Um, to talk about the tax implications briefly, um, there's a number of things we have to consider as tax advisors to make sure there's no upfront cost uh, from a tax perspective of implementing this structure. The first is stamp duty. And it's important, I'm, say, I'm talking about stamp duty, not stamp duty land tax here. So stamp duty is um, half a percent on the value of the company. And because the two companies we're talking about will be connected, um, it's the stamp duty potentially is chargeable at uh, the market value of the company. So if we've got a 10 million pound company um, and we don't qualify for relief, potentially half a percent of 10 million pounds will become payable um, as soon as we do this transaction. So the first one of my first jobs is making sure that relief is available. Um, and to put it simply, as long as we do everything in an identical fashion, i.e. the shareholders before are the same shareholders, uh, the same shareholders in Tradeco are the same in Holdco. Um, they hold exactly the same proportions. Um, and uh, what term is used most commonly when we're talking about these is that there's a mirror image. So uh, everything is identical before and after. Um, and therefore, HMRC should grant relief from stamp duty. They'll still stamp the document to say the shares have been transferred, um, but they will provide relief so that no stamp duty is payable. The next important tax here is capital gains tax, um, and there are specific share exchange provisions in the legislation. Again, it's quite similar to stamp duty. As long as we meet those conditions, then we uh, will qualify for relief from capital gains tax. And the way those conditions work is that the legislation says, if you qualify for this relief, those new shares that you now own in Holdco will be treated as the exact same shares you held in Tradeco. Even though obviously we've, we're talking about different shares, the legislation treats them as the same thing. Um, so we often use the term, they stand in the shoes of the old shares. Uh, what that means is that, again, coming back to things like business asset disposal relief. So if you're going to obtain the 10% tax rate, if we insert a hold co um, and we don't qualify for the capital gains tax relief now, but let's say in 12 months time, someone comes to buy the company, 
um, you won't have held shares in Holdco for two years and therefore wouldn't qualify um, for the 10% tax rate when someone comes to buy the company. What the share exchange provisions say is that they are the same asset as the original shares and therefore technically, even though they're now shares in Holdco, they're actually, um, you have held them for two years. Let's say you've you've owned Tradeco for 10 years. Your holding period of 10 years carries over for capital gains tax purposes. So you now hold for the purposes of business asset disposal relief and those kinds of um, reliefs, then you'll hold the shares for at least 10 years. Um, so that's a very important relief that we need to make sure we're happy that the conditions are met when we um, implement this structure. Um, and the other important thing to say there is that HMRC will provide us with a clearance before we do this. Um, the clearance is, we, we, we would always go for a clearance on these types of transactions. Um, obviously, it provides some certainty to the shareholders. But also in the event of a future sale, um, you know, on due diligence, we it's very common that we would get the question, can we see the clearance um, and can we see HMRC's approval so that we know that the transaction was enacted in the way that HMRC agreed to. Um, the only thing to note on those clearances is that HMRC, one of the conditions for this relief is that we're not doing it for tax avoidance purposes. Obviously, if we're inserting a holding company so that we can protect some of the assets of the company that's a wholly commercial purpose so what the clearance says is hmrc are happy what we're doing is not for tax avoidance and therefore they will accept that the conditions are met but it doesn't say that the specific conditions that you need to meet to in to um qualify for the share exchange um that they, they don't need to confirm those are met. They only have to confirm that tax avoidance is not a main purpose. Um, so again, part of our job is making sure that there's absolutely no um, issue that the wider conditions are met and therefore relief will be available from capital gains tax. Um, the other one is um, when we apply for clearance, we would always also apply for a what's called a transactions in securities clearance. And what that means is HMRC will confirm they'll not counteract this transaction by saying we think one of the main purposes was to obtain an income tax advantage. Um, and therefore, we're going to subject the whole value now to dividend tax rates, because obviously that would be disastrous. You'd be paying for if take my 10 million pound example, you'd be paying almost 40% in tax on day one because HMRC think you're trying to do this to avoid some income tax, which obviously in this case, we're not. We're again, HMRC are confirming that we're doing this for commercial reasons. There's no tax avoidance at stake. Um, so that's quite a long winded way of basically saying when we're doing these structures, we'll get an advanced clearance and we'll make sure um, as we go through the process that no tax exposure um, will apply um, on day one. So once we've got a holding company in place, obviously we then need to strip out those assets that we are trying to protect. Um, there's a couple of ways of doing that, which I'll come on to the mechanics, um, but effectively we are transferring anything that we don't want in the trading company up to the holding company instead. Um, and obviously, Louise and Patrick will come on to this in more detail. Uh, but the main point of doing that is that 
normally um, you couldn't go up the chain of a group of companies in order to um, stake a claim on the cash, or in this case, the office building um, that now Holdco owns. So if there was a claim against the trade for whatever reason, um, it's only the assets that remain in Tradeco um, in most cases that should be um, liable. Um, the other thing to say here is that we've moved cash into a holding company, but largely when we have a company, one company owning 100% of another, uh, that means that it's a group of companies. It means for when we're doing intergroup transactions, 99% um, of the time those intergroup transactions are going to be tax neutral because it's all within this group structure. Um, <clears throat> so as I said, I'd come on to the mechanisms for how we actually transfer these companies, these properties and cash and these assets up. There's There's two ways that we would typically do that. If we can, we'd do that via a dividend or a distribution in specie. Um, and the reason for doing it that way is that that's by Tradeco, that's a voluntary contribution. Um, so Tradeco is paying up, either, we call it a dividend if it's cash, a distribution in specie is effectively a dividend, but using a non-cash asset. So a property, if you're transferring that via a dividend, that's actually a distribution in specie. Um, the benefit of doing that is that there's no um, debt created when we do that, as long as we do, as long as it's enacted correctly, and um, there are some in intricacies to make sure you do do it correctly. But that's a largely a legal issue. Um, but if there's no mortgage on the property, for instance, then the asset is transferred up, um, and things like stamp duty, land tax, there would be no issues. Um, because for stamp duty land tax, it's payable on consideration. A dividend or a distribution species has no consideration because it's a voluntary contribution. And therefore, um, we don't need to claim any exemptions or reliefs. Um, the main issue we have uh, and why we can't always do um, the, the what we call a hive up, the transfer of the assets this way, is that for company law purposes, you have to have sufficient reserves. And when I say reserves, I'm talking about the retained profits or the retained earnings that sit at the bottom of the balance sheet. Um, the one um, positive about talking about the reserves is that you only have to have reserves of what the book value is. And when I say book value, I mean, if you've got a property that's, let's say it's worth £5 million, but on the balance sheet, it's still sitting at £2 million at the original cost. Um, you only need the reserves of £2 million, not the full value of the £5 million. Um, so quite often we come across transferring assets up, um, even though they're worth a lot more than they're shown on the balance sheet. Um, we're okay in terms of making sure we've got enough reserves because they um, we only need the book value for the purpose of the Companies Act. Um, the other thing to say there, even if we have a property, so um, UK Gap says when we've got investment properties, we should revalue them to fair value every year or so. If we revalue for accounting purposes, it means, use my example again, we'd have a £2 million original cost and we'd have a revaluation reserve of £3 million. So in your accounts, you'll be sitting with investment property £5 million. In the reserve section of your balance sheet, you'll have revaluation reserve, three million pounds. 
and hopefully you'll have retained earnings of two million pounds. So we can use, if we're transferring the property the revaluation reserve relates to, we can use that and treat it as realized for our purposes. So again, even if we have got a five million pound book value, it's not necessarily the retained earnings value. We can sometimes use the revaluation reserve as well. Um, and as I say, if we can do it via distribution in specie, because that's a voluntary distribution, that kind of is, that's the date the transaction happens and there's no further issues going forward. If we don't have reserves, what we'd normally look at is to do it via an intercompany loan. What that means is when we transfer it up to Holdco, um, technically Holdco obviously then own, owes, um, again, we can use the book value, owes the book value back down to Tradeco. So there is still an asset on Tradeco's balance sheet, which is the debt that's now owed by Holdco. The issue we have then is we need to be quite careful in terms of when we write that off, if we write that off, and whether it's a commercial loan. Because, of course, if something is transferred and you say it's as a loan, but you never intend to repay it, then arguably it's never been a loan in the first place. So there's some tax issues we need to be careful of to make sure um, that we do this correctly and there's no um, future tax issues and also potentially some insolvency issues in the future if, that, if that's not done properly. Um, so holding company structures, uh, I've just kind of summarized some of the main benefits um, and drawbacks of these kinds of structures. Obviously, the main thing is the asset protection. So those assets we've transferred up to a holding company, hopefully there'll be no claim from any future liabilities um, against those assets that um, have been built up over the years. Um, largely, we can do this without in, uh, any upfront tax costs, which is great. And obviously, we get HMRC clearance to confirm um, as well. Um, business property relief, if you qualified for that before, you should qualify for that after. So we should be unaffected there as well. Um, it is possible for hold code to now charge a rent. So if there's a property, they could charge a rent down to trade code if that's um, a desire. Um, it does add some flexibility when we look to sell in the future. So it might be that, let's say that the shareholders don't need any cash when they sell, or, or it's really just their pension pot. So they could sell Tradeco, Holdco receives the proceeds of the sale. Um, and because there's something called a substantial shareholdings exemption, Holdco may not even pay any tax when they sell the shares of Tradeco. Um, so there's some flexibility there. Um, and hence why I say there's a potential for a tax-free sale in the future. And the, we often also put these structures in place to incentivize employees. So you might want to protect those assets, but you might want to say to some of your key staff, we want to give you, let's say, 5% of the value of the trade going forward um, as long as you meet certain targets. So splitting out the assets that you've built up so far um, could be um, a, a useful way of making sure that the employees don't share in in those um, in that value. Some of the downsides of doing this, obviously, there are some upfront costs um, obtaining those clearances. Um, normally, we would recommend using a solicitor to draft up um, those documents to make sure everything is above board. And as I as I say, with any due diligence in the future, if someone comes to along to buy the company. Um, it could cause an, a real headache if this isn't done properly. So we always recommend using a solicitor. Um, obviously, we've now got two companies. So we've got an ongoing compliance cost of actually filing accounts for those extra companies. Um, 
And the other thing with an extra company is that the main rate now for C for corporation tax is 25%. Um, the more companies you have that are connected and controlled, um, you reduce the thresholds at which you pay 25%. So if you had a single trading company before, 25%. Um, but then if you insert a second company, your threshold is halved. Uh, so if you're over the threshold in Tradeco, um, then potentially you'll be paying that 25% quicker. Um, it's also, depending on the size of the company, worthwhile checking that this isn't going to force you into having an audit um, when you didn't want one because obviously ongoing costs in terms of getting it having an audit is quite significant compared to um, having basic accounts drawn up by an accountant um, so that's also something we, we would always consider before we put these kinds of structures in place um, I only want to touch on demergers very very quickly just to show that there is an alternative to this um, but there's also some further drawbacks as well. So what a demerger is, instead of inserting a holding company and having all your assets still within that group, what you could do is completely separate them out into two entirely separate groups. Again, there should be no upfront tax costs of doing that as long as the everything's identical as we had um, in the holding company structure, exact same shareholders, exact same proportions, uh, we should be able to achieve that tax-free. Um, the benefit of that, say for instance, you don't currently qualify for inheritance tax business property relief because you've got too many investment pro um, properties or non-trading assets. If we split out the non-trading assets entirely from the group, we could now end up with the trade co group on the left hand side there qualifying for business property relief whilst prop co continues not to so we could actually use that as a mechanism to improve the uh, tax efficiency for inheritance tax purposes um the downsides this is quite a costly mechanism to put in place uh, there's quite a lot more work involved both from a tax perspective and a legal perspective um and now if the office in this case is a trading asset that we're just trying to protect we've now taken the office out of a trading group so for propco they're now renting the office to tradeco that's now an investment asset so you're losing potentially some of those reliefs that i've already talked about because you converted a trading asset being the office and even if the office was held by holdco it's still owned by a holding company of a trading group so that's still fine but in a demerger that office is now an investment asset and therefore we've potentially lost some relief. But the, the demerger um, does give us some benefits. I've already talked about the business property relief. Um, if there's going to be a sale in the future, I've said if we sell out of Holdco in the, um, the first structure I talked about, just having Holdco own Tradeco, Holdco pays no tax, which is great because it's got substantial shareholdings exemption. But then the problem is, how do we get the cash out if we want the cash out? The only way to do that is either liquidate the company so you, it's a capital gain or pay it out as a dividend. You might not want to liquidate it because you might um, you might have those properties in there. So there's extra tax costs to um, transfer the properties out on liquidation. Um, but you might want some of those proceeds and therefore have to pay a dividend. And if we're talking up to 40% on dividend tax rates, um, that's obviously not very tax efficient. So if you think you might be looking at selling in, say, three, five, 10 years time, 
you might decide at this point, let's go the whole way. Let's do a demerger because we've got commercial reasons to do it. HMRC should give us clearance because we're doing this for commercial reasons now. But what it means is we're going to keep those properties. Those properties are our pension pot for the future. We'll keep Tradeco in a separate group. So if someone comes along to buy it at any point, even though we're not looking to sell in the short term, um, then the sale of Tradeco and retaining the properties personally um, will be subject to capital gains tax, potentially all at 10%. Um, so there's a potential quite significant tax saving. Um, and some of the work we do is what, what I call pre-transaction demergers, um, which is splitting these properties out of trading groups so that they can sell. Um, and we always put sort of potential tax savings together to kind of justify why would we go to this effort before a sale, because a sale in itself is um, quite a significant transaction for most people. Um, and normally, e even on relatively small companies, if we're talking, say, if, I think the last one I did was, say, a £5 million company, the tax saving by demerging the property, which wasn't going to be sold first, uh, was something in the region of about £300,000. Um, so the tax efficiencies by demerging, um, if there's going to be a sale at any point in the future, could be quite significant. And it also means you don't have to do these transactions twice. You don't end up doing the hold code to protect your assets now, and then in a few years' time coming back and doing a demerger and paying even more cost. Um, the other thing, if you have a demerger and you might be selling in the future, is that uh, the if you want to sell the property, you could sell the shares of the property company instead of the property itself. Again, the share sale will be a capital gain, which is better than um, income distributions. But also for the buyer, um, you might be in a good position to negotiate because the buyer is buying shares of a company. It's not buying a property. So instead of the SDLT rates, which are anything up to 15%, um, the buyer is only paying half a percent in stamp duty. Uh, which obviously then puts you in a better position to demand a higher price. Um, so that's another um, benefit of doing a demerger as well. Uh, the, the the final thing is, I've talked about EMI options, that's uh, enterprise management incentives, which are a very tax efficient way to incentivize employees with share options. Um, what you can't do in our hold co structure is issue those options in trade co whilst you've got a holding company in place. Because one of the conditions for an EMI option is that it has to be issued by the top company. So if EMI options are going to be considered, then we need to look at doing a demerger so the trade is completely separate. So I just wanted to touch on that briefly because that's my, something you might consider as an alternative um, if any of those issues um, do apply sort of in the short, medium or long term. Um, but generally, when we're talking about just protecting assets, hopefully the holding company structure is much simpler to put in place um, and will give you that protection. Um, and with that, I'll hand over to uh, Louise and Patrick uh, to talk you through kind of the um, insolvency and, and how this works from a legal side. Thanks, Nick. Yeah. So hi, everybody. I'm Louise Williams. I'm a licensed insolvency practitioner known as an IP, specialising in corporate restructuring, insolvent liquidations and also solvent liquidations. I've worked with a broad range of business sizes from startup to PLCs, undertaking all types of corporate and personal insolvency work. 
currently work for Opus in the Nottingham office. There are 12 other offices. And prior to that, I worked for a, a boutique firm and then spent most of my career at RSM through its various guises. Um, he's slightly blurred out, but we will swap shortly. Patrick's sat next to me. He's an ex-RSM partner now consulting into the Opus Nottingham office. So you'll see from the slides that what we're covering, our aim is to help you understand the role and powers of an insolvency practitioner and how they would look at the structures described if the companies ever fell into insolvency. So just briefly, what is insolvency? Section 123 of the Insolvency Act 86 defines insolvency, but broadly it's an inability to pay its debts as and when they fall due. So there are two tests for this, a balance sheet and a cash flow basis. Patrick, in his um, speech shortly, will mention connected parties and associates, which broadly are directors, shareholders, relatives, employees and debenture holders. Okay. So I'll just briefly explain the different types of insolvency events. So you'll hear um, something called a compulsory liquidation. This occurs when a winding up petition has been presented, an order made and then a government official becomes a liquidator. There's a creditors voluntary liquidation is seen as a burial procedure instigated by the directors. Members' voluntary liquidation, probably more familiar, it's a solvent procedure, good for utilising entrepreneurs' relief. A liquidator gets appointed in that um, scenario. Administration is seen as a rescue procedure and an administrator gets appointed. Receivership is where an IP is instructed by the secured creditor to realise an asset, usually property. And a, a company voluntary arrangement or a CVA is an agreement to pay creditors over a fixed period and a supervisor is appointed to administer the arrangement. So in terms of the role of an, uh, an insolvency practitioner or an IP, clearly the work falls into the following categories. Realise the assets, usually property, debts, cash, goodwill, etc. Um, review the company books and records to ascertain information to pursue claims against third parties. Report to the government on the fitness of the directors within three months. It's a factual yes, no questionnaire and then to distribute the funds realised after costs to creditors in order of priority. I'm just going to hand over to Patrick now to talk about special legal action that an insolvency practitioner can bring and the various antecedent transactions. Super. Um, I mean, I suppose the reason that most people be looking at these structures is they're looking at if bad things happen to the trade, how do we how do the shareholders put themselves in the best possible position to, so that the, the good assets are, are not available to be sold um, and realised for the benefit of creditors, they're to be, they're, 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 they're separate. So you kind of, everyone's com is, um, where the concept of group accounts, group, group structures, uh, and often, often people think about, oh, I've got a, there's a group of companies. But in if a company goes into insolvency, it's we only look at the individual legal entities. So the insolvency practitioner can only has power over the assets that are in a particular legal entity. So in this example, um, if we've done the, the restructure and then in three years time, let's say the trading company has problems and goes into insolvency, the the liquidator is only appointed over the company um that has the problems i.e the, the the trade the trade company in this case and if the other companies are solvent and there's no cross guarantees or anything like that then the assets in those companies are not available for the insolvency practitioner to sell so although it's a group he's only appointed over one of the one of the companies um, so 
what happens then? What powers does the insolvency practitioner have to try and unpick transactions that have been entered into prior to the insolvency? Um, and the, the 1986 Act, which is the, the Act that seems like quite a long time ago now, but still governs um, um, insolvencies, um, set out various powers that an insolvency practitioner can have to try and look at uh, transactions. So the, so the first one now, I've got it, Section 238 of the Insolvency Act, is transactions at undervalue. So what that's trying to do is trying to stop directors um, disposing of assets at something less than market value prior to an insolvency. Um, and an insolvency practitioner can apply to court to have these transactions basically overturned but only within certain um, uh, parameters. So firstly, the transaction would have to have happened within two years prior to the insolvency. So if your scheme happened, if, the, if that happened three years before, then this, wouldn't, this particular section wouldn't, wouldn't apply. Um, one of the defences is if you can show that the company was solvent at the time, so even if there's been a transaction at an undervalue, there was a sale of, let's say the property was transferred at a price, let's say it was transferred at a book value price, which was less than the market value price. If the company was solvent both before and after the transaction, then that would be that would be a defense. So it's quite second two, three, eight is quite limited because it's limited in time and it's limited by this year, were you insolvent at the time? The next thing that the um, insolvency practitioner can look at is something called preferences. So it's saying in the run up to an insolvency, have you, have you chosen to prefer one creditor over another? And typically it's re it, one of its main aims is trying to look at connected parties have connected parties preferred themselves so as part of any transaction if the deal was that an asset was transferred and that eliminated an already existing um intercompany loan i.e effectively the intercompany was loan was repaid by the transfer of asset then the insolvency practitioner could have a go at that and again if that happened within two years and um, he doesn't need to prefer. Doesn't need to. He doesn't need to show that he had. You had the desire to prefer. It's just a matter of fact between connected parties. If that happens, he can have a go at that. So they're quite limited areas, aren't they? They're sort of well, it's limited by time, and then you've got the defence of solvency. And this is where we come on to um, section four two three, which is a different beast altogether. Um, that doesn't really doesn't really have any limits on time but what it does has is you have to be able to show the intention on this one so it's a bit like um you have to get inside the mind the corporate mind uh, of the organization who's put in place these these structures um and it's looking at transactions at undervalue were they there to um uh, put assets beyond the reach of creditors. So broadly speaking, if you 
if the asset is transferred at value, and that is market value, then this won't apply because if what you've ended up with, instead of having the company's let, lost its property, but has it had an asset in return for the same value, then that's fine. Um, that would be a defense. Um, so ideally, if you could have, if the asset was transferred and you got cash for it, it was like sold in a conventional way to another group company, that would be fine. If it was sold and it was left on the intercompany, then you've just got to look and say, well, was that, um, what's the value of that intercompany asset? Is that, is that, is the old, is the company losing the property actually getting an asset in return that's of equivalent value? Um, so that's the, um, but of course, what you have to do is show, what the insolvent petition has to show is intention there. So that's quite important. It's the other two don't require intention, but 43, there's no time limits, but you have to show intention. So it, with these claims, um, you can imagine if, if the company is underperforming and everyone panics and say, we need to put a structure in place to get this right, you're going to be more at risk. Whereas if the business is very solvent and you put them in place um, for some future problem, you know, you're, you're fairly, you, you know, you'd be fairly bomb proof on that. And I think it's the, I think uh, it's the phrase that George Osborne used about when he said, we are repairing the roof when it's shining. So if you are putting these transactions in place when there is no real, um, there is no real worry about solvency, you're in a lot better position than if you try and do one of these transactions with three months to go to insolvency. Then it becomes harder because you've um, clearly some of the intentions are going to be quite going to be quite obvious. Um, so those are the primary claims that an insolvency practitioner can make. Um, he also has powers around what's called misfeasance, which is about directors acting in using um, uh, having having fiduciary duties and acting in the best interest of the company. So what we're going to do now, Louise is just going to go through some practical steps that we think you need to put in place if you're doing one of these transactions so that in the event that it does go into insolvency, um, you are you, you're better protected. Absolutely, that's right. So um, Patrick will get, uh, come back to a conclusion in a moment, but in, in terms of practical steps, Transactions involving the transfer of assets need written valuations and proper terms of reference. So that's really important. And that comes back to what Patrick was saying about having sort of the evidence there. Um, where a transaction involves a dividend, careful checks should be taken um, around the availability of distributable reserves, which is, is standard, obviously, in, in the normal case of paying dividends anyway. Um, where possible, use a sale and purchase agreement to show the assets and the values being transferred so that you've got some sort of evidence there. Um, and equally, any decisions that are made, we always say it was helpful if you minute and explain all of your actions. Certainly then um, you're able to provide that if somebody starts to challenge or question anything that you've done. In terms of the suite of the documents, these need to be prepared with a view to them being read later by a critical IP. So if the worst happened and an insolvency practitioner is appointed, um, just be mindful when you're preparing them what they're looking for, which is obviously what Patrick's sort of 
just touched on previously. Um, when a property is transferred at market value, but the consideration is an intercompany loan, then careful consideration should be given to the actual effect value of that loan. Think about can it be repaid? What assets need to be realised to repay that loan? And who are the other creditors in the company? I think you need to state the reasons for the transactions and just be careful about those reasons. Um, avoid using a cross guarantee as this can have the effect of drawing a solvent company into the problems of an insolvent company. Um, so just give that some thought. And then also the same applies with a group back registration for all the companies that can slightly complicate matters. So give that some consideration also. Um, we just wanted to mention that historically, um, from experience, we'd say that insolvency practitioners taking action usually relied, A, upon obviously having a good case, but also having the funds in the case to be able to take any action against um, company directors, etc. But what we have seen in recent years is a large increase in organisations offering funding, um, funding IPs to take the legal action. So um, as I said before, we were always a bit nervous. We didn't have the costs in the case and we couldn't provide security for costs if, if the case was lost. Whereas now AT insurance is available so that insurers will pay the adverse costs of the if the IP loses. Um, you might well have heard of funders such as Manalay who are looking to buy these legal claims and pursue them through the courts. So I think it's, it's probably fair to say that there has there's more of an appetite to pursue claims, um, depending on the merit of them, of course. Um, but I think that, you know, as a director, just be mindful that it, it, these things don't get buried, perhaps like they might have previously done, depending on on funds in the case. Um, so Patrick's just going to conclude kind of what we've talked and how that links in with, with what Nick's prepared. Yeah, so we, we've seen quite a lot of cases where, um, so we've been appointed as liquidators or administrators where um, at some point in history, there's been a, a, um, a whole co has been put in and a, and a property has been um, moved out. Um, and in essence, I suppose the key the key elements to it are um, for defence is were you solvent at the time? That's a big defence. Did it happen two years beyond two years um, working backwards from the liquidation? If that if you're over two years, you've got a lot of you've got a lot, a lot of defences. And the big one is as long as you are transferring stuff at market value and you evidence that it's market value. Um, then it's very hard for insolvency practitioner to bring a claim because the company hasn't the the actions the transactions that took place didn't actually harm the company that eventually went into liquidation. Yes, it did have an asset, but that's either been replaced by another asset or it's been it's been distributed and under um, with distributor reserves and. That was that was properly done at the time. So I would always say each case is different. Um, and in, in doing any of these things, um, I think the the lawyers that you use are very important. So one, just in terms of how the how the documentation, but also the lawyers to say, right, what what might be the challenges in your particular case because obviously every case is different and then it's um if you've hit the main points about about solvency about market value um it's very hard to 
to, to bring a challenge. If you try and do these too late, when the company is having problems and solvency is an issue, and then, and then the solvency is is fairly near, then it's then then it's harder. So I think it's a thing to put in place while the time while the going is good, but you'll just have that general worry about what if in the future. So yeah, there are points. Thank you very much. Thanks, both. That was really interesting. Yeah, I think those those couple of points I just think are absolutely vital. The um, the things I, I was writing down as as uh, as I was learning everything as well. Um, they this the, if we can if we're selling for market value and then um, putting the transaction in place whilst we're solvent because obviously a lot of the time these are the types of things people don't think about until it's too late. Um, and as soon as it's too late, then you know once we do this, then there's it's almost no no point in doing it. So. Um, and it's interesting as well, as you were talking about the distributable reserves, when when we see the legal documents that solicitors prepare, putting structures like this in place, there's there's quite a significant section in the board minutes talking about the reserves. And um, it's always a case of how do we justify the reserves? Um, normally, we'll look at the accounts that have most recently been filed. But normally, there's quite a gap between the last set of accounts at a company's house and the time we're actually doing this transaction so um we'll often at least try and have some management accounts to have a bit, a bit more recent so um so it, yeah it's a lot um, more clear that we, we've got plenty of reserves to do it and then hopefully that will give some protections to um to the shareholders and the company as um as we um as we intend so um no that was that was really interesting thank you um I know Sasha's got a few questions come in as well. I don't if anyone also wants to raise a hand and um, use video or, um, or, or or speak, then uh, please feel free to do so. Um, or obviously any more questions in the um, Q&A box um, and you know, we'll take those now. Hi Nick, I have a question for you. Um, so if I've already, have a holding company with its own business can i incorporate a new subsidiary to move the assets across rather than into the holding company um yes you can so from a tax and legal perspective in enacting that um that's perfectly plausible so the if we I, i've talked quite a bit about distributable reserves and doing it as a distribution in specie where possible um we have done transactions in the past where we've done what's called a sideways distribution. So you can't, generally most people, um, or I think what the Companies Act largely says is a distribution is a distribution to a, a, a company shareholders. So if you've got a holding company owning a trading company and the trading company wants to transfer assets, if it's going to be a distribution, it has to be to the holding company. Um, but I know certainly a number of lawyers who also think from a legal perspective it's possible to do a distribution from a subsidiary to another subsidiary um so yeah it, it's entirely possible to do from a tax and legal perspective i don't know if louise and patrick have a view on how well that um would work from an asset protection structure can we go sideways to the two to the other subsidiary uh, i i don't understand how you go sideways 
I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't see what the... I, yeah, I don't understand that. Right. So I think what you said earlier, when in sort of earlier on, was you you would only look at the the company in question. So if we've got a group where we've got a holding company, yeah, owning two subsidiaries, yeah, can you presumably you can only look at that one company that's insolvent? If we've still got a successful company on as another subsidiary, yeah. So if it's a if it's like a sister company, it's sort of yeah. It's beneath the holding company like ours is beneath the holding company. No, that's we can't have any of those assets. Right. Uh, we might be able to look at claims involving transactions between those co two companies. Um, so, yes, we, 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 we couldn't look at that. I, I just don't understand how you get from an asset, an asset, from an asset sideways unless it goes up <laughs> and down. Yeah, and I think, I, I think the jury's out, really, because I know solicitors who say you can't do that. You can only go if you're going to, as as I said, typically, a distribution is a distribution in relation to the shares, and the holding company owns the shares. Yeah. So how do you move it? And yeah, it does seem a bit odd. I know a number of solicitors who say technically it's possible under the Companies Act, right. but this is a company law question, and yeah, I'm I'm not going to try and explain it or understand it. As if a solicitor says it's possible, then um, the tax consequences are actually the same either way. If we're talking about a group where you've got holding company owning 100% of two subs, then the tax consequences are the same because we're all within a group and therefore we get group relief if there's a capital gain and we get SDLT relief. Um, or if it's a distribution in specie, then we don't even need the relief. So... Um, yeah, from a tax angle, I've not got a problem with it. And if a solicitor says it's legally possible, I'll I'll, I'll let them, yeah. I'll let them do it. But yes, I do I do take your point that it seems a bit strange to be able to do it unless you did it as an intercompany loan. But that's yeah, I can see that if you're selling the assets between sister companies and loan, yeah. I can see that. But not not the distribution. Not not the distribution. Yeah. Mm, agreed. Yeah. Um, okay. Hopefully that answers that question. Have we got another, any others? Great, thank you. Um, yes, leaning on to my next question. If we do a demerger, how do we get the extra cash from the training bu business to the other group? And are there any tax implications? Um, yeah, so in our subsidiary hold co structure, as long as you've got reserves, and let's say you want to invest more into property or just hold the excess cash in the holding company, um, you can just dividend the cash up, which is nice and straightforward. The holding company doesn't pay tax on the dividend it receives because um, subject to some very minor um, conditions, um, UK companies don't pay tax on receipt of dividends. Um, so that's not a problem. The issue is when we are then trying to move it to another company, again, we're coming back to you can only do a distribution um, to, the, to the company's shareholders. So a subsidiary can only go up to the hold co or possibly, depending on which lawyer you talk to, maybe to a company within the group. You can't, you certainly can't do a distribution from a com one company within a group to an entirely different group because they don't own the, the two groups, although they're connected by having common individual shareholders at the top, they are not um, they are not within a, a, a group for capital gains tax purposes and those kinds of things. Um, so how do you get it across? You can, m most of the time, 
people will lend the money across. That's not very helpful. Again, coming back to asset, if we're doing this for asset protection purposes, um, we always put a caveat in, if you're going to lend money across to a company, it has to be commercial. Uh, because, and I've not actually seen HMRC argue this point, but there is a theoretical problem that if you lend money to um, a connected company outside of the group and then write the loan off, which if you're trying to do this for asset protection, you're probably going to want to write it off as soon as you can. Um, there is a theoretical argument that HMRC can say, the only way you can do that is take the cash, pay it to the individual shareholders, then the individual shareholders put it back in, even if you just move the money from one bank to the other company bank account. In theory, the only way to do it from a tax perspective is to follow it through, go to dividend out to the shareholder, and then let the shareholder lends it back into, um, let's say, the property company, uh, which obviously doesn't work because then you're paying 40% or up to 40% in dividend tax rates. Um, so it's possible to write off commercial loans. And I think there is, as I say, that's a theoretical argument. I've not seen HMRC take it in the past. Um, and if it's an entirely commercial loan, and that means when you actually make the loan to invest in the, the, the other group company, um, you have to intend to repay it. Um, then you could, in theory, write it off without that tax implication, subject to the commerciality of that transaction at that point as well. So once you've demerged, it is a lot more difficult um, to effectively to get the cash out of that company and um without the risk at least of potentially incurring income tax on that. Um, any more? Great, thank you. Um, yeah, I have one final question. Um, so if we have two groups of shareholders in our business, the family members who have run the business since incorporation and some high level management, can we insert a holding company which is owned by just the family members and leave the management as shareholders of the existing company? Um, yes, you can, um, but not without tax implications. Um, so I talked about the conditions for actually setting these structures up. To insert a holding company, if you're doing 100%, and as I said before, if you mirror image everything, all the proportions are identical, um, the shareholders before and after are the same people, um, and they own the same proportions of shares in the same classes, um, then there's no stamp duty. But if you don't have that mirror image, um, let's say you've got, I don't know, 10% 10 of your shares are management shares and the other 90% are family shares, um, then the stamp duty relief is not going to be available. The good thing is that stamp duty in the, the um, and I'm talking about, again, I'm talking about stamp duty and not to be confused with stamp duty land tax, it's, it is only at half a percent. So that might be a cost you're willing to incur to ensure that the management team stay behind in the trading company um, because it's only half a percent of the value. But again, um, what Louise and Patrick were saying, when, when we do these things, we need to make sure we've documented valuations and things. Um, and it would be even more important here because we would have a stamp duty charge so um, that 
we 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 we'd need to be aware of that in terms of adding the extra cost. Um, in terms of whether you can do it for capital gains tax purposes, again, it shouldn't be a problem. The main issue from on the share exchange rules that I was talking about is the holding company has to acquire more than 25%. So as long as your management team don't account for 75% or more, um, then you would, the, the shareholders who are swapping shares up to Holdco would get relief from capital gains tax. So it's possible, but the stamp duty is your main problem. Great, thank you, Nick, Louise, and Patrick. Um, as mentioned, this has been recorded and we'll share it after, um, well, this afternoon, hopefully. And if you have any additional questions or more information for the speakers, um, their contact details are on the final slides. Great, thank you, everyone. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.